good afternoon, and, uh, it's, uh, and welcome to the LSE. It's an honor and a privilege uh, for us to welcome Jackie Smith, the Home Secretary, here this afternoon. Jackie Smith grew up in Malvern, Worcestershire, before moving to Redditch, which she has represented since 1997. She's a graduate of Hartford College, Oxford, PPE, and was a school teacher for several years before entering politics. She served in a number of positions, including a Minister of State for Health with Responsibility for the Social Services, Minister of State at the Department of Trade and Industry, and Deputy Minister for Women. Since the election in 2005, she became Minister of State for Schools and in May uh, 2006 joined the Cabinet as Chief Whip. She is today the Home Secretary, the first woman, I should say, the first woman to have served as Home Secretary since the post was established in 1782. This afternoon, Jackie Smith will deliver a lecture on the topic of shared protection, shared values, next steps on migration. The debate about migration today is, of course, a highly contentious one, and there are few people better to guide us through it, I think, than Jackie Smith. On behalf of the LSE, the Migration Studies Unit, under whose auspices we are gathered here this afternoon, please join with me in giving the Home Secretary a very warm LSE welcome. Thank you very much, David, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. I'm delighted uh, to have been invited by the Migration Studies Unit to share my thoughts with you on one of the most sensitive questions facing Britain today. Immigration has always been an issue of public interest. In recent years, it's become accepted as a key factor in our economic growth but at the same time, it has led to greater representations about how public services are resourced. It sits high on the list of concerns voiced by the public. It fires the imagination of headline writers. More broadly, it's now central to renewed debates about the future of Britain and Britishness. For all its undoubted benefits, the increased flow of migration that the UK and other countries have experienced has brought with it important challenges. These challenges are as much about the speed of change that local communities have seen as about the extent of that change. As I'll argue today, when it comes to immigration, it's never simply a question of numbers. Rather, it's about understanding the context in which immigration contributes to our economy, our society and our culture. For government, it's about learning from these experiences to provide a coherent and trusted response. This is a delicate debate, one that has shown itself all too vulnerable to exploitation for political ends. But that shouldn't prevent us from engaging in it at all. So today I'd like to set out how I believe the benefits of migration, benefits that we all share in, should be underpinned by the robustness of the systems that we have in place to regulate it and by the expectations that we have of those who come to Britain to work, to live and to build a better life for themselves. And I should say in passing that I'm particularly pleased to be at the LSE for this purpose today. As a world-renowned institution, you know at first hand the richness that comes from attracting the best and the brightest to your doors. With your strong tradition of understanding the political implications of economic thinking, you're also alive to the different levels on which evidence is based and the arguments played out on the issue of immigration. From the purity of the macroeconomic case for migration through to the social and cultural sensitivities that we cannot ignore. Every other week, work permitting, I sit with my family in another historic arena, another world-renowned institution that very visibly understands the benefits of international migration, the Doug Ellis Stand at Villa Park. And last Saturday, a full house of 42,000 people watched Arsenal's Foreign Legion 
Uh, their only English player came on as a sub after an hour. Scrape a win uh, against a home te- team, a Villa team, featuring six British players. Now, I'm not sure of the precise lessons about migration policy to be drawn from the match itself. It's probably safe to say that those 42,000 fans, along with the millions of others uh, watching the match across the UK and across the globe, weren't too concerned about where the players came from, just whether their team was going to win or not. But I mention it because while the predominance of foreign players in the Premiership is not in itself a compelling case for how comfortable we have become as a country with diversity, it is an important signal of how readily people are prepared to accept and embrace change when they understand its advantages. It's no accident, I think, that we've seen the British experience of migration taken up by some of the most energetic and powerful works of fiction. Scanning the shelves of the local bookshop, you'll find... Monica Alley's Brick Lane, Andrea Levy's Small Island, and A Short History of Tractors in Ukrainian by Marina Levitchka. These very different writers have discovered in the stories of human difference a fertile seam of humour and sadness, of anger and irony, frustration and enlightenment. And as another best-selling author, Bill Clinton, once said, it's the differences between us that make life interesting. And over in the current affairs section, just past uh, the DVDs of the Who Do You Think You Are TV series, there's a host of titles that point to our fascination about who we are as a nation and where we come from. From the tribes of Britain by David Miles to the polemic of A.A. Gill's Angry Island and the passion of Billy Bragg's The Progressive Patriot, Writers across the political spectrum are engaging with the concept of Britishness and its relevance in today's cosmopolitan society. And there is, for me, something very satisfying in this urge to understand the byways just as much as the highways of British history and something very warming about our centuries-old ability to pool our diversity, to share a common space. In international terms, of course, the UK is not alone. In fact, we have lower levels of foreign-born nationals as a proportion of our total population than France, Germany or the US. Nor is this anything new. Our islands, as any of these books will tell you, have always been subject to the flows of migration. Our history, both ancient and modern, is rich with examples of how economic growth has been supported and even secured through migrant labour. Today, migrant workers are filling skills shortages and meeting labour market demands. They're supporting public services by working in the NHS. They're creating new businesses and jobs. And the net fiscal contribution they're making is comparatively stronger than those born in the UK. Last year, immigration contributed roughly £6 billion to GDP growth. If net migration ceased, our growth rate would be cut by 0.5% over the next two years. That said, I believe there is something new in the concerns now being felt. It's finding a voice in anecdotes, in urban myths, in daily media accounts that I fear can sometimes reinforce anxieties as much as report them. Tall tales about poaching carp from ponds, overcrowding in churches, a shortage of £50 notes. Tongue firmly in cheek, The Guardian recently ran a summary of this phenomenon under the title, Got a Problem? Blame it on the Eastern Europeans. What I do take seriously is the danger that these stories could create a new consensus, one that rejects the economic benefits of migration because these can't be readily separated out from the social change that accompanies it. And it concerns me precisely because the arguments we're currently making in support of migration don't necessarily empathise with the real and direct experience that communities across the country are now feeling. Many of them are seeing change on a quite dramatic scale over quite a short period and many of them are experiencing this for the first time. This isn't ultimately 
a debate about the rights and wrongs of migration, an appeal to the macroeconomic purity of 0.5% of GDP will never be a clinching argument on the doorsteps of my Redditch constituency. For communities and individuals now feeling insecurity and uncertainty, we need to find a way to communicate the benefits of migration at the same time as showing a greater understanding of how people are coping with change in their daily lives. We need to engage with much more sensitivity and in terms that make sense to people. That means taking on board rather than wishing away concerns about the changes, the disruption even, that immigration can bring. We all know that change can be unsettling. In responding to the pressures that can be felt by local communities and local services, it's the job of modern progressive government to demonstrate that we're managing this change for the benefit of the UK. And that also means that we should not deny the global changes that will impact on all of us, nor try to convince people that it is possible or even desirable to seal our country off against migration flows. If there are legitimate concerns about the impact of migration on certain communities, and if these views are widespread, then we as a government need to listen and to take action. That's why Hazel Blears and I set up the Migration Impacts Forum, now gathering evidence about the effects of immigration on the provision of public services to local communities. And it's why Immigration Minister Liam Byrne has spent time since the summer crisscrossing the country to run listening events that get people's views on migration and citizenship at first hand. We know that people's confidence in migration policy is tied closely to their faith in the systems that protect our borders and uphold our laws. I'm under no illusions that we need to earn that faith by delivering a migration system that is managed robustly and that provides high levels of, production, of protection for individuals, for the country and ultimately for the values that we share. In 1994, the decision to start removing embarkation controls failed to look ahead to the border problems that we now face. It's been important to put new protections in the place of these controls. People are concerned that our border should be secure. That boils down to knowing who's coming in and who's leaving, and knowing that those who would want to threaten our security or who are a known risk will not be allowed to enter. Over the last 18 months, we've acted on that concern with a concerted effort to deliver structures and procedures that will secure our border and regulate entry. We've just signed the borders contract, a robust system that will count everyone in and out of Britain, ensuring that we know who's here, who should be allowed and who refused. Travellers by train, plane and boat will be checked against police customs and immigration watch lists. A pilot scheme has caught more than 1,400 criminals, flagging people wanted for murder and rape as well as those guilty of identity fraud. Tangible proof that we're making our borders and our communities safer. In 18 months' time, all high-risk routes to the UK will be covered and half of all journeys by foreign nationals coming here. And alongside e-borders, we've reformed our approach to visas. By April, anyone applying for a visa will have their fingerprints taken, and we're exporting our border, basing staff overseas to do extra checks that stop illegal immigrants before they travel. The next step that we're taking is the creation of a single UK border agency, a much more visible and effective force at our ports of entry and overseas dealing with people and freight to build greater reassurance in the travelling public, streamlining the checks that travellers have to go through and working closely with the police on organised crime and counter-terrorism. As well as securing the border to prevent abuse, people are concerned that we manage migration for the benefit of the UK. So we're now putting in place more stringent tests in place for those who want to come here to work and study. To get control of that machinery, wholesale reform has been necessary. Indeed, 
instead of the 80 or so routes to enter the UK, all with different requirements, from now on we'll have a single points-based system. This will start to go live in the next few months, setting out explicitly the skills we want to attract to the UK and the conditions that people will have to meet before they can come. Five levels or tiers will cover the different categories of skills for potential immigrants from beyond the EEA, with clear criteria set for who we need to come here and who we don't. Tier one is for highly skilled migrants whose qualities and experience equip them to set up new businesses or work in highly specialised fields. Tier two will be for skilled workers to fill jobs where there's a shortage of resident workers in areas like engineering, IT and education. Tier three covers low-skilled workers and the flexibility of the system is shown by the fact that we've already taken the decision to suspend this level because we believe that EU migration is providing the workers that our labour market needs in this respect. Tier four will be for international students who bring such benefits to the UK and tier five for temporary workers. The points-based system will be responsive to our needs to ensure we have the right controls in place and that we know what gaps in the labour market we may need to fill in the future. The Independent Migration Advisory Committee, chaired by the LSE's Professor of Industrial Relations, David Metcalf, will identify specific sectors and occupations where shortages exist. The advice of David's committee will help us to decide which skills should be given points and which should not so that we can control labour migration effectively. And the committee will study the progress being made as well to equip British workers with the skills they need to face the challenges of the future so that we can adjust the system to take account of growth in our own skill space. Today I'm publishing the detailed statement of intent on how Tier 1 will work once it starts in March next year. It will replace eight immigration routes for entrepreneurs and business leaders and means that to qualify for entry, all applicants will have to score points based on their skills, qualifications, proficiency in English, financial status and compliance with the law. The single border agency, the single points-based system, both show that we have reformed the machinery of migration to ensure that we police and manage the system in the interests of the UK. The next stage is to tackle the complexity of immigration law. Basically, the 1971 Immigration Act plus 10 subsequent acts laid on top that have been necessary to fill gaps. Now, I will know that uh, immigration simplification is an unlikely rallying call. Some might even call it a contradiction in terms. But consolidating those provisions will allow us to clean up a sprawling legal framework of rules, conditions, guidance and concessions. That complexity can reduce the efficiency of decision-making. It can lead to delays and the risk of mistakes. It can make enforcement of refusals and deportation more difficult by increasing the likelihood of protracted legal challenge. Our changes will make the law more straightforward for all its users and will support greater public confidence in the overall effectiveness of the system. Our changes will deliver quicker and easier decision-making and greater transparency in processes and likely outcomes. And they'll minimise the requirement for discretion. When trust is so crucial, it's important to have clear rules for all and not thousands of pages of quasi-legal guidance just to make a single decision. Simplification of the law, e-borders, biometric visas, the border agency, the points-based system, and from next year, ID cards for foreign nationals. This is the greatest package of sustained and coherent immigration reform ever undertaken in the UK. It's been necessary, occasionally thankless work, but it will make a marked and compelling difference to how we manage our border in the future and will give us a system that is better, fairer and easier to enforce. Now, I don't expect any of this to 
capture the imagination of the British people, nor should it. I think people rightly expect the systems that we have in place to work and to work in the interests of Britain. And they do, of course, care very strongly indeed that the system is clear about who is allowed to enter the UK, that we apply the right tests fairly, and that we enforce the law robustly. The infrastructure we have now will take us some way towards meeting these expectations. And the time is now right to think clearly about the goals that we want that machinery to serve. I believe that we now need to go further to enshrine in our approach to migration a greater sense of the shared protections and the shared values that will be a necessary condition of citizenship. The draft bill that we'll publish in this parliamentary session will set out the next steps on reform in this area. Ahead of that, I want to give some examples of the areas that we're looking at. As Liam Byrne has found on his tour of the country, his listening tour, the use of the English language and observance of the law are among the most widely held concerns that people have when asked about migration and citizenship. If people want to come and live in the UK, I think it's fair to spell out clearly the obligations they should accept and the values that we all should share. We expect people to play a full part in the life of their communities and to participate fully in British life. Speaking English is an important element of this. We already require migrants who want to settle here or become British citizens to pass tests in English and on their knowledge of life in the UK. Under Tiers 1 and 2 of the points-based system, skilled migrant workers will have to demonstrate an acceptable level of English. This isn't a demand made on spurious grounds. We recognise the value of migrants being able to make their way in the UK, to integrate into local communities, to protect themselves from exploitation. Fluency in English increases somebody's chances of being employed by a fifth and has a similar impact on earnings. And today I'm publishing for consultation proposals that would expect spouses applying for leave to enter the UK with the intention of settling here to demonstrate basic knowledge of English before arrival. Last year, nearly 50,000 people were admitted to the UK as a spouse or fiancé. I think it's fair that we should now set out our expectation that they're able to speak English before they come here. This is an important next step to aid the integration of migrant spouses from the earliest possible stage. It will, as I've said, improve their employment prospects and the contribution that they're able to make to society, and it will prepare them for the tests that they'll need to pass if they wish to settle in the UK. If we expect people coming here in search of a better life to contribute to society and learn English, we also expect them to comply with the law of the land. There is absolutely no doubt that the vast majority of foreign nationals, as well as making the contribution that they do to our economy, abide by the rules. But there is a small and worrying minority who do commit crime and do abuse our hospitality. 15% of the UK prison population is made up of foreign nationals, more than two-thirds of those from outside the EEA. We're already clear that those who commit serious crimes forfeit the right to be here and should be deported. The UK Borders Act has strengthened the law and will ensure that the vast majority of foreign nationals from outside the EU who commit serious crimes will face automatic deportation and be required to mount any appeal from abroad. And we're working within the EU to ensure that we constantly look at the balance between the right of free movement and behaviour that threatens our security. The freedom to work and live anywhere in the 27 member states is one of the outstanding benefits that EU membership brings, as testified by the millions of Brits who choose to live abroad. But freedom of movement is not an unfettered right. Last year, we had to deport over 350 people from EEA countries for serious crimes. We've extradited more than 500 under the fast track 
European arrest warrant will be removing the need for the consent of prisoners before transferring them home to serve their sentence. There's more that we can do at EU level to build a common approach to removing EEA nationals where lower level crimes are committed or where people are seeking to take unfair advantage of the right of free movement. And there's more, than we can do, there's more that we can do at home to look at how we treat those who wish to become British citizens and how to take greater account of any past criminal record in deciding on their eligibility. In the next step towards this aim, I'm now tightening the criteria for British citizenship. This will abolish the long-standing clear period policy that can allow foreign nationals with unspent convictions to become British. From the 1st of January, applicants will normally be refused citizenship on good character grounds if they have a criminal conviction that is unspent. British citizenship is a privilege. We all recognise it as such. We understand the rights it confers and the obligations it requires of us. The next few months will see us set out a clearer path to citizenship with tougher thresholds to meet along the way on professional skills, language ability and personal behaviour. Alongside the action that we'll take to support shared protections and shared values for all British citizens, wherever they may come from, we must also find a ready space for those who are vulnerable and exploited. We will always remain, and rightly, a haven for the oppressed and those legitimately seeking asylum and the security of our care. It's clearly right that we should allow British citizens to be joined by their partners from overseas and that our system should allow family formation. But to answer concerns that no one should be pressurised into forced marriage by being made to sponsor a marriage visa against their will, I'm today publishing plans to tighten immigration rules in this area. Under these proposals, the age at which a person can sponsor or be sponsored to come to the UK for marriage would be raised from 18 to 21. The intention to sponsor a partner from overseas will need to be declared before they travel. And sponsors who felt pressurised will also have the opportunity to provide a confidential statement. We'll also do more for abandoned spouses, including revoking permission to be here for those who've exploited the marriage route to stay here. In conclusion, then, I want to return to one of the books that I plucked from the shelf earlier on. In The Progressive Patriot, Billy Bragg calls for a living, lively public debate about what we mean by British values and how a multicultural Britain can more fully reflect and express its diversity. Most people, he writes, assume that Britishness is a mixture of fairness, tolerance and, above all, decency and are dismayed when they see their fellow, fellow Britons, be they politicians or foul-mouthed louts, failing to live up to these standards. If we're to convince the people of Barking and Dagenham that the rights of the indigenous majority are protected, while at the same time presenting new would-be citizens with something tangible to work towards, then we have to ensure that traditional British values are based on something more than the assumptions of Middle England. I welcome those words for the importance that they attach to the expectations that we should have of ourselves as well as those that we place on others. I have to say, however, as a Worcester woman, I might take issue with the bard of barking on the dangers of Middle England's assumptions. These are no bad thing, let me tell you. But I think that Billy is right to focus on the need to communicate a story that will resonate with all our citizens. And for me, that means that by sharing protections and sharing values in the way that I've outlined today, we can continue to celebrate difference and we can do so with a tolerance and a fairness and a broad-mindedness that is uniquely British. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for a precise, concise, challenging and optimistic 
lecture. It was a, a pleasure to listen to you and uh, a pleasure to listen to your arguments. We have um, nearly 25 minutes, I'm pleased to say, for questions. Um, I like to take questions in clusters of four to five, so the audience has a substantial opportunity to raise issues. Uh, because we're somewhat pressed for time, I'd be pleased if the questions were in the model of the lecture, short and concise. I shall be grading them and letting you have your grades later. So we mean short and concise on the broad themes of the lecture in the first instance. Thank you. There's a, is there a mic roaming? Yeah, we'll bring you all questions will be, questions will have a mic. If you could just say who you are briefly. And yes, Nick, Nick Wilson, um, um, uh, a chartered accountant. Um, question, I've lived overseas and so I've seen the benefits of, uh, of migration overseas and, and benefits from living in various countries. But it does concern me that it's now taken many years and it seems to me, I'm not trying to make a party political point, but would you not accept that if uh, the government and maybe the previous government had introduced what you're talking about now, whether five years ago, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, many people wouldn't be or wouldn't be as concerned as they are. Thank you. Yeah. Please, over there. At the top. Hi, I'm Philippe Legrain. I'm a visiting fellow at the European Institute here and the uh, author of Immigrants, Your Country Needs Them. Um, you're very proud about um, your new points system. In fact, Liam Berm says it enables uh, Britain to pick uh, the right uh, people that the country needs. But you have to be sceptical about how uh, any department, let alone your own, um, would be able to determine quite uh, who these right people are. I mean, under Tier 1, you need to have a university degree, which means that you would have turned away a young Bill Gates. It means if Richard Branson had been born abroad, you wouldn't have let him in. It means that uh, Barack, Obama's farmer, uh, Barack Obama's father being a Kenyan goat herder would not have been let in. Would, not that, would that not have been uh, a big loss to Britain? In fact, I imagine, actually, that the, the parents of many of the uh, British-born players of your so proud playing for Aston Villa uh, would not have been allowed in. On, on the matter of Tier 2, I mean, how on earth do you expect a uh, committee of wise men uh, to, to determine where shortages uh, in, in the economy exist, let alone how, where they're going to exist in future. Such manpower planning went out with the Soviet Union. If you think it's such a great idea, why don't you apply it with, between regions uh, within Britain? And last but not least, and I think the, the, the idea of ID cards for foreign nationals, how exactly are who are people going to determine who these foreign nationals are? And isn't it not likely to lead uh, to uh, people who uh, happen to look for, i.e. non-white people, uh, being stopped and asked to prove uh, that they are uh, British uh, and therefore do not need to carry such ID cards? Uh, and how, are you going to, how, how would you propose to stop uh, such discrimination and harassment? Thank you. Um, good on challenge, not so good on preciseness. Well, precise, but a bit long. Yes, lady at the back. Hello, I'm Georgie Lewis from the LSE. Um, how, would you, um, how are you going to ensure that the new UK border a agency, which is merging BIA, UK visas and customs, will be a competent and well-managed, efficient organisation, given that some of the criticism of the Home Office in the past has been that it's been too large to manage effectively? And also, if you're planning to streamline the immigration rules, when anomalous case, cases come up, such as the case of Iraqi interpreters, for um, the forces in, in Iraq. When they come up, uh, how do you plan to, um, to deal with those if the uh, re regulations are more constricting? Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Gentleman at the top. Yeah. Hi. Um, I'd like to follow on from the question that was asked regarding um, Tier 3 <coughs> and the idea of EU um, doctrine of EU preference that will effectively mean nobody from outside of the, well certainly nobody from Africa or Asia will be able to apply for work unless they fit into tier one and two and how that kind of fits in with the idea that we have a commonwealth and our relationships with the commonwealth. That's, all, that's one question. Um, the other one, the point relating to um, asylum seekers and their ability to actually claim asylum as they're entitled to under the UN conventions um, successive governments have made that much more difficult and at present we have a situation which is actually a criminal offence to enter the UK to claim asylum if you've travelled on, if you like, false documents, which is 99% of asylum seekers. 
If you could kind of um, respond to those two points, okay. please. And finally, gentleman, you meet yeah. uh, Could you say who you are? I'm uh, Peter Ramsey. I'm a lecturer in law at LSE. You, um, you suggested, or you, you said, uh, that ultimately uh, the immigration system that you want to design should protect the values that we share. And I wondered whether you include amongst the values that we share, I presume you mean British values, uh, uh, freedom from detention without trial. Uh, And if that is a British value, a value we share, why does it not apply to the asylum seekers and migrants who are routinely denied that freedom uh, who you wish to uh, integrate into the values that we share? Well, Home Secretary, um, quite an impressive set of initial questions. Okay. Um, Nick's charge appeared to be that it has taken us too much uh, time. I mean, the truth of this is that there has been a lot of work that has been necessary to do, uh, I would argue, over the last 10 years. Firstly, actually, to uh, get the uh, system, get the, uh, the mechanics of the system into a state where actually we feel confident to be able to move on to the next stage. And, you know, we're not talking about day zero here. There has been considerable progress. If we take, for example... Uh, the uh, speed with which decisions are now made, the much fairer and swifter approach that we take to asylum (coughs) seekers, for example, those, of course, were issues which actually had to be dealt with before we could move on to uh, the next stage. Philip, was it Philip? Yeah, Uh, The point about the the, uh, points-based system. Now, I wasn't quite sure whether or not the contention that you were making was that... In fact, I think the contention that you were making was that there should be no control rather than the criteria that we had got were wrong, right? Now, on the first, I fundamentally disagree with you. I don't believe it's possible to create uh, a uh, migration system in which people can have confidence and which, incidentally... Uh, manages to avoid some of the worst excesses of both prejudice and uh, worse against those people that are coming to this country without there also being a confidence that the approach that we take to make decisions about who comes here is robust. So, uh, you know, I, I disagree with you about whether or not there should be control. What should be the nature of those controls? Well, you know, you make some important points about, um, you know, whether or not Bill Gates would have been able to come here. It is, of course, an important Uh, component of the (coughs) tier one statement of intent that we've published today to identify that the investor category, for example, would be part of the tier one um, uh, tier one um, criteria. So there will be routes, rightly, through which those people who perhaps do not have a traditional academic contribution to make, but nevertheless would make an important contribution to the country, could come in. Uh, Tier two Uh, How can a committee determine shortages? Well, David Metcalf will presumably um, have something to say about that. But I don't think it is beyond the wit of um, uh, economists and others to be able to actually look um, at some relatively straightforward aspects of particular sectors to be able to determine whether or not from vacancy rates, from uh, what's happening to... um, uh, to the sort of um, demands that there are in that area, how that's impacting through um, uh, pay and other aspects, to determine which elements of the economy uh, face skills shortages and which don't. Now, of course, it is crucial that we find ways in which we can actually uh, skill people here and uh, those coming from abroad in order to fill those uh, fill those vacancies. But nevertheless, I don't believe that what we're proposing is a, the sort of centrally planned approach that you're uh, talking about. I think it is a sophisticated approach to actually being able to, um, to determine through the Migration Advisory uh, Committee the sorts of areas where migration will clearly be um, beneficial. Uh, on ID cards, well, I mean, one argument, of, one of the uh, conclusions of the argument that you made about how will we be able to determine who foreigners are is actually uh, the need to extend the ID card system beyond simply uh, foreign nationals and uh, uh, much more more widely than that, something of course which we are also uh, committed to uh, doing. Um, Georgina's argument was, uh, you know, how will we we ensure that the UK border agency will be uh, competent? Well, um, actually I think, of course there will be important management and transformation issues which we will address and and get a grip of. But fundamentally, bringing together functions which are about control at the border, regardless of whether or not they relate to freight or to people, 
of itself gives you a better opportunity actually to create a more efficient and a more effective um, agency. The point about Iraqi interpreters, interestingly, is we have already addressed the issue of Iraqi interpreters outside normal immigration routes, precisely in order to be able to address that particular, um, that particular um, uh, challenge. The question about, sorry, the, the gentleman, I think, up, yeah, the gentleman uh, in the top tier. Um, <coughs> yeah, it is, it is um, uh, an, uh, you know, the context in which we are operating our migration system is the context of our EU membership is the context of the free movement uh, of labour within uh, the EU. Um, that is a, uh, a correct, in my view, political decision that we have um, taken. And therefore, we, you know, if we're concerned about meeting um, the needs in the way in which I've described previously, then it is, to a certain extent, inevitable that we will balance up the extent to which... Um, unskilled labour is being supplied from the EU against that that's coming from outside and it's because of the supply from within the EU that we've made the decision that we have about um, tier 3. I've referred I think to the improvements that we've already made to the fairness and the speed with which we make decisions about um, asylum seekers. Peter's point about detention um, without trial. Uh, the detention of course that is happening in the immigration estate uh, to be fair uh, is a detention which to a, a large extent is optional because uh, people have, once the decision has been fairly taken through due process, both the ability and in fact in many cases the assistance to be able to leave the country voluntarily. Now if people don't choose to leave the country voluntarily and in order to maintain the integrity of the asylum system we need to deport people, which we do, then that implies in certain cases the need for detention. I think we'll just take we'll, we've had a round of questions I'm now going to take uh, another round uh, yeah I promise this gentleman here the first opportunity Hi there um, I'm Alex from LSE your lecture explored migration in a kind of a purely, from a purely selfish perspective and I was and seemed to pay no respect to the um, interests of either illegal immigrants or the interests of those living abroad and I was just wondering what you would say to someone who has, their, uh, has a visa rejected or what would you say to someone who is say sick in a country suffering from a doctor brain drain because we had attracted all their skilled doctors um, yeah cheers thank you clear question yeah I'll, I'll take some up here yeah um, front row the process of selecting you I'm afraid is a bit arbitrary but yes well let's start with you uh, thank you sir uh, good afternoon ma'am um, my name is Subhash Virma, and I'm a student here at the LSE. Uh, my question relates to migration as a topic in British politics. Early in his tenure, Gordon Brown was criticised for a comment, British jobs for British workers. Critics claimed that this opened the way for so-called right-wing political parties to push the implications of this comment further. Do you believe this is true? And if so, do you believe that a Le Pen anti-immigration rhetoric uh, it could slip into British politics. Thank you. Good question. Yes. Hi, I'm a student at LSE, and I'd like to ask you: that, Do you see any? Do you see any possibility of a common immigration system for the EU member states? And if it happens, is UK going to take part in it? Because UK doesn't take part in the Schengen visa for the most of the EU member states. Behind you, yeah, young gentleman behind you. Um, my name's Kevin, I'm a student here as well. I was going to ask you about illegal immigrants who are already in England who sort of don't fit into any of the categories you were talking about. These are people who work hard in this country, contribute to the economy. They even contribute to your department, I believe, uh, quite recently. Um, and yet they're not protected by the law. They, they cannot make use of services such as the NHS. And yet it is it's out of the question that we deport all of them. How do you suggest we tackle this issue, seeing that you're against um, naturalising or generally naturalising illegal immigrants who are already in the country? Thanks. Thank you. Gentlemen, yeah. Jan DeWilder from the International Organisation for Migration. Uh, there are, by some estimates, at least a half a million illegal workers in this country. And I wonder what effect you think uh, either unskilled migration from the EU or Tier 5 
short-term migration will have on those numbers. And on the, uh, what I would imagine is a very important economic contribution that these people make, uh, they are a, a kind of de facto subsidy to the economic sectors in which they work. Thank you. Thank you. And the lady. Um, my name is Yashoda. I'm a student here. I had um, two questions. First of all, how, do you, uh, how are you going to enforce the English language requirement given that even within Great Britain, for instance, Wales, you speak Welsh, you don't have to speak English. And uh, my second question is, I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on what you mentioned about exporting British um, border members. Right. We, this is probably going to be, for reasons of time constraints, the last cluster. So I, if you don't mind, I'll just pick up one or two more before we give you the, the last one. Yes. Right to the front. Second. Yeah. Say who you are. Yeah. Uh, Harvey from Queen Mary. Um, you've spoken about the need for the integration of new migrants into Britain. But um, what about the descendants of um, families who've been living here for the last 50 years, say um, Commonwealth immigrants? And yeah, and finally, the uh, gentleman at the front here. With, yeah. And this, I'm afraid, will have to be the last question. Hi, um, Jonathan Morris from NSC. Um, I think you make a very valuable point about um, making sure that people are able to speak English um, when they come to this country. And you've suggested that you'll only allow people um, into this country once they have a, an ability in the English language. How would you deal um, – I live um, very close to a town called New Malden, very in the suburbs of London, uh, very high Korean population, um, and I would say very, very few have a competent um, ability in, in our language. So surely the key issue is how you deal with these people, and, and therefore how would you deal with it, and how would it be funded, and why should the taxpayer in this country have to pay for them to – come to a certain level. Okay, another big range of questions. Okay. And you might take this opportunity to wrap it up. Okay. Um, first of all, Alex's contention that somehow or another this was a selfish approach to uh, immigration. I mean, it is an approach that is based on um, uh, my responsibilities as Home Secretary for an immigration system that uh, serves the British people. Um, but it's set in a context, of course, and in particular relation to your question about, you know, what would I say to uh, somebody who was ill and who didn't have a, a doctor in a developing country? Well, I mean, the first thing I'd say is, of course, thanks to the investment, actually, that we put into the health service in this country, we are now much less likely, in fact, in most cases, uh, positively restricted. For, the NHS is positively restricted from taking doctors from developing countries, and quite right, too. And secondly, of course, we are investing quite considerably in the development of precisely those, uh, those countries, which I accept, um, you know, people may well, because of differential states of development, want to, um, want to travel away from. Um, that's not, uh, you know, that is, if you like, setting immigration in the, in the broader context of our responsibility to uh, the world and to ensuring um, uh, economic and international development, which I would argue as a government we've shown a pretty strong commitment to. Um, the, the point uh, about British jobs for British workers, um, I mean, the argument here, of course, as I set out with respect to the, um, uh, particularly to the way in which we uh, will use the Migration Advisory Committee, is um, I think it is right for the government to uh, also invest in, as Gordon Brown was talking about when he used that phrase, the sorts of skills that will enable uh, people in this country to be in a better uh, position to take up the 600,000 vacancies that there already, already are in this country. And it's not somehow sort of um, uh, unreasonable for a government to want to focus its efforts and its resources on ensuring the skilling of its people as well as providing opportunities for people to come from uh, abroad. Will we, will we move to a common... Um, uh, immigration system for the EU. Um, I think there is probably uh, more that we could um, uh, more that we could do uh, across the uh, EU with respect to our immigration system. But uh, I think it's fair to say 
uh, not least having uh, gone through the negotiations that we've just gone through on the treaty, it is unlikely that we as the UK are going to be uh, an, uh, in the near future changing our position with respect to um, uh, the way in which we deal with uh, immigration and uh, the EU. On the point which was raised by two people about illegal, um, uh, illegal immigrants, uh, you know, people identified the problem. I accept that there's a problem. It's also the case that I don't believe, uh, not, not only do I not believe that the answer to the problem is naturalisation or some sort of amnesty, but actually I precisely think that that would be likely to exacerbate um, uh, exacerbate the problem, which is why actually we don't, uh, you know, we do not believe that that is the appropriate uh, approach to take. Uh, we do think um, uh, it's important that we send out a clear message, as we are doing through the reforms that we're making, about uh, what will be the circumstances where people can <coughs> illegally come to the UK, and to be quite clear about what would be the circumstances where they couldn't, in order to prevent that problem from growing uh, in <coughs> the future. Uh, how do we? Um, uh, you know, I don't think the fact that some people speak Welsh in Wales, Lindsay, is um, a sort of killer argument against um, uh, the uh, requirements for, um, uh, uh, for some elements of English um, for people coming to this country. And with respect to the point that um, Jonathan made, and in fact uh, other, somebody else I think made about English, um, we're making... Um, actually in the consultation that we're issuing today about uh, English requirements for spouses, um, you know, I have to say I see this, uh, as I said in my speech, as much about the ability of somebody to be able to integrate as I do about some sort of method of control. I mean, frankly, the idea and the, and the levels that we're talking about are basic English. The idea that somebody would come here as a spouse, unable to ask directions very basically will be able to do that pretty quickly after they got here seems to me actually to be um, putting that individual in a situation where at the very least they're going to be unable to play a full part in society and potentially in some circumstances they're going to actually be open to exploitation as well. Um, and on the point about it, what do we mean by exporting the border? In particular that relates to the way in which um, with respect to uh, visa applications, for example, increasingly we are expecting those applications uh, to be both uh, done and also uh, checked and regulated uh, in, the, um, in the countries. And the use particularly of biometrics means that you're actually able to check people's eligibility uh, out in the country in which they're applying rather than waiting until, if you like, the second line of border, which is when they actually arrive at the border of the country. Thank you. Well, before asking you all to join with me in thanking Jackie Smith, I have just one brief announcement. It's just to ask you all to remain seated at the end whilst uh, Jackie Smith leaves the lecture theatre. Um, so, Jackie, thank you very much on behalf of us all, on behalf of the Migration Studies Unit for a most, uh, I think, compelling lecture, but thank the audience too for an equally compelling, short, concise response. So, a round of applause for everybody, I think. <laughs>